Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Rue. That's Matt. That's Cat. And we are random but memorable. <laughs> yeah, it turned into a band introduction. <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh dear. We are. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, there was a wild stallions element to that, wasn't there? God damn, that was great. Yeah. Okay, I, I think we just use that one. We're gonna use that, Anna. All right. That's right. I'm going to tell you what to do this time. Ah. When they ask us to sing, we step up to the microphone and it comes out a little something like this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Gosh, I love it. All right. So I think it's time that we dive into some Watchtower Weekly and we're going to run out of time. Agreed. Yeah. So this is an interesting one. The headline is a little bit different from what the actual story is. Apple targeted in $50 million ransomware attack, resulting in unprecedented schematic leaks. So Apple has been targeted in $50 million worth of a ransomware attack following the theft of a trove of engineering and manufacturing schematics of current and future projects. This is actually... Apple themselves were probably the target, but this is kind of a, um, a supply chain issue. And Quanta Computing, uh, who actually are a manufacturing company, and they deal with a whole bunch of, of different computer companies. They make stuff for HP, IBM, all of those as well. But this group was, was hacked by the Russian hacking group Revil, R-Evil. I think that's like a, what are we thinking, like a 3 out of 10 on the naming? It's pretty um, good, yeah. They they also go by the name Sodino Kibi, which I, I think is a bit more. I think that's I like. Just stick with Revil. Oh, oh, I, I think the second one's much better. Rhymes with Weevil. I mean, there is that. <laughs> they probably get real like mad Revel. if you call it Revel. Mm, that's yeah. That's a peanut chocolate thing, right? Is you really? know, from the onset, they're up to no good with a name like Revil. Uh, that is also <laughs> true. Yeah. So, so the group had already begun posting the, the stolen images on April 20th, timed specifically to coincide with Apple's latest spring-loaded event. After Quanta refused to pay the $50 million ransomware for the, for the data, the group is now hoping to get Apple itself to pay up by May 1st, promising to continue to post new images from the leak and, until it does. Quanta has confirmed that its servers were breached, commenting, Quanta's computer's information security team has worked with external IT experts in response to the cyber attacks on a small number of Quanta servers. Quanta also say that there's no impact, no material impact, on the company's business operation as a result of the hack, because that's what we were all wondering. Revil has a history of similar ransomware attacks with other groups also carrying out similar attacks on Acer and other companies in the past uh, several months. But the Quanta attack, by virtue of its connection to Apple and the potential to reveal unannounced Apple hardware, marks the group's highest profile target yet. So, yeah, I mean, th th this is quite interesting. They actually linked, uh, leaked, ahead of Apple's event, the iMac redesign which prior to the event hadn't been seen by anybody outside of, of Apple uh, and their kind of, you know, their sphere, lending credence to the fact that the documents are indeed accurate. Also contained within this are the revealed files that there are manufacturing diagrams for the already released M1, uh, the MacBook Air refresh, as well as an unreleased laptop that features additional ports in line with the existing rumors for the upcoming laptop refresh from Apple. So... 
there's some there's some stuff here that you know obviously has been released and some unreleased stuff as well which is uh, it, it's not good there's a lot of people good. out there that would want to see this yeah, including probably some competitors that that want to get to market quicker with a with a similar thing. Yeah, I, it's a bit of an odd one, isn't it? Because it's it's a data breach, but it's no like it's it's company information rather than customer personal information. Yeah, it it kind of um, makes me wonder whether it's funded somehow. From from elsewhere, right? Like, mm, yeah, interesting. Suspicious. I, I don't know. $50 million is quite a lot of money, but is it a lot for Apple? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. Which I, like, I kind of think that's not the point. Yeah. The, the, the point here, I think, that is interesting, that it is a supply chain hack. Like, this could have happened... Anywhere along Apple's gigantic, constantly evolving, constantly moving supply chain, right? They let partners in now on the, you know, for AirTags, there was a bunch of things released at the same time that were like, hey, here's how you can carry your little AirTag around. And, and like, they must have been let in on the schematics of these products earlier, than, than release so like that mm-hmm. already is something that i don't know 10 years ago apple wouldn't have been even thought of yeah i feel like they like they're not going to pay that are they do you think they would like surely that just sets the precedent do you know what i'm 50 50 i really am i i couldn't couldn't guess either way yeah i it's it's a fascinating one so one i completely agree i'm kind of surprised that this is the first time we're really hearing of something big like this mm-hmm because it's, you're right, like their supply chain has so many steps along the way and and the fact that they, they do open it up to third parties. Although, I mean, let's be honest, those third parties probably take those agreements in incredibly seriously because if they don't and something goes wrong, Apple's going to be like, all right, well, we're not going to call you again, so congratulations. <laughs> but yeah, uh, as far as like, do they pay it? They might. They might just pay this and make it go away. It's really hard to say. A company that size has to have insurance for data breaches and stuff, right? Mm, yeah, quite possibly. If they're willing to pay 50, then why wouldn't they pay 100? Like, in a way, you'd be like, well, where did that figure come from? And surely they could just keep upping it if they're willing to pay any of it. They'd keep, they could just keep increasing it. You're giving them ideas now, Kat. <laughs> <laughs> this is how i negotiate <laughs> it's immediately just where her brain goes to just immediately well you could get 50 out of someone cool <laughs> <laughs> probably get probably get more huh <laughs> so this next one is another apple one airdrop has significant privacy leak says the german researchers and this one's been covered by naked security it's a an interesting document and it goes through a whole bunch of different kind of like some dramatic some less dramatic well one of the main elements of this is is that you know when you open up airdrop to everyone you can get a thumbnail and someone can easily apparently send you a unsolicited pick that you are forced to see in in order to decide whether you want to like accept or decline that right airdrop shows you a thumbnail first so you have to decline it i mean if you're not running this in contacts only mode or 
kind of switching from everyone when you need something like that and then back to contacts only mode probably do that (laughs) i think that's my only take on this one if you read further into the article it's how information if you set it in in contacts only mode the information that is exchanged by two ios devices when in contacts only mode to determine if they are contacts is not properly protected and is And is exchanging information such that, like, you could actually pull someone's phone number if you... Okay. How does this work? If if you and I are in a room together, and I bring up AirDrop, and let's just say that you, you and I aren't friends, and I don't know you, which I do feel that way sometimes, that <laughs> if, if I want to try and AirDrop to you, what our phones will do is exchange a hash of our contact information to each other and, and compare them that way. Now, the hash does not reveal... Uh, sort of blind data it's not plain text data of like oh Matt's phone number is this and Rue's phone number is this it's hashed so but if you had a list of all possible phone numbers you can then hash you could get a hash of all the possible phone numbers and compare the hashes and then get my phone number out of that so it, it is a way of sort of like information can be exchanged in a way that can be sort of reversed and and discovered the, the, the true nature so people could use this to start to harvest people's contact data in this way Right. Oh, that's what it's about. So that's when they're saying there's only 10 to the power of nine possible numbers for a total of one billion. That, that's that's just UK phone numbers, I guess, because it's, uh, yeah. it's seven, nine, nine digits after the seven. Mm. Interesting. They buried the lead on this one, huh? <laughs> they did, yes. Airdrop, I don't, I don't use it that much, but every time I do, I get reminded of the days when... I used to use infrared. Did anyone used to use that when you had your first mobile phone? Yes, on like the thirty-three ten i. Friend. <laughs> so this next one is about a ransomware attack that causes a supermarket cheese shortage in the Netherlands, and I think we can judge the seriousness of this by the words "cheese shortage" in the Netherlands. So shoppers at a Dutch supermarket have noticed that some of the cheeses were in short supply as of late, and it was cyber criminals who were to blame. Branches of the largest supermarket chain in Netherlands, which I'm not going to attempt the name of. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let me see if I can get it. Hold on. Here we go. Our resident Dutch American. Hold on a sec. Where the hell is it? Why don't I see it? Largest supermarket chain. Uh... Oh, Albert. Albert. It's probably Albert Hain. It, it probably is. Albert Hain. The old Phantom J. Yeah. So, yeah, they suffered from food shortages after a ransomware attack hit food transportation and logistics firm. Are you going to try this one as well? Backer oh, that, Logistic? Yeah, it's, it's, it's Backer Logistic. Yeah, over the Easter holiday, causing the firm to shut off computer systems and resort to pen and paper. Oof. Uh, I have watched a number of documentaries about systems and kind of just logistics change including the police and the ambulance system and and 999. And when their system goes down and they start to resort to pen and paper, it is absolutely mind-blowing. The, you know, they have people that resort instantly to runners between people. And like, God, you just, you, you learn to put up with the fact that sometimes your microphone doesn't work while you're recording a podcast and stuff because (laughs) the alternative is bad. So inevitably... This did impact shipments with deliveries from the company's warehouses coming to a standstill and shortages hitting up the, the branches of, of Albert Hein. 
So amongst the food types to be in short supply was pre-packaged cheese. They apologised on their website. They said, due to a technical malfunction, there is a limited availability on prepackaged cheese. The logistics service provider is working hard to solve the problem as quickly as possible and restore availability. We apologise for the inconvenience. I read that as we apologise for the intolerance. <laughs> I was like, if you've got a, if you've got a dairy intolerance, yeah, there's, no, there's no problem for you. Yeah, this is another supply chain issue of a different kind. <laughs> so the last one that we have today is MI5 warns of spies using LinkedIn to trick staff into spilling secrets. Th- this is a bit of an odd one that, like, you don't hear much from MI5 in general over the, you know, <laughs> like from their, their, their PR department is obviously not not huge. They spend their money elsewhere, of course. And... This is the first time I've heard of them in a long time putting out like a, you know, public service broadcast or something. At least 10,000 UK nationals have been approached by fake profiles linked to hostile states on LinkedIn over the past five years, according to MI5. It has warned users who accepted such connection requests might have then been lured into sharing secrets. So malicious profiles are being used on an industrial scale. Uh, says the agency's security chief, Ken McCallum. The campaign has been launched to educate government workers about the threat. The effort, think before you link, we, uh, I take back everything I said about their PR department, that they've been working (laughs) on that for a long time. (laughs) Think before you link. They warn foreign spies are targeting those with access to sensitive information. MI5 did not specifically name LinkedIn, but BBC... News has learned that the Microsoft-owned service is indeed the platform involved. The 10,000-plus figure includes staff in virtually every government department as well as key industries that might be offered, you know, speaking or business or travel opportunities that could lead to attempts to recruit them to provide confidential information. And it is thought that a large number of those approached engaged initially with profiles that contacted them online. They say that no one is immune to being socially manipulated into wrongdoing through these approaches. The campaign run for the cent run, the campaign run by the Center for Protection of National Infrastructure, which reports to MI5, asks government staff to focus on the four R's. God, they've got their 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 PR team is on fire. Take everything back I said earlier. <laughs> so the four here we go. These 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 are uh, oh, tangential links at best. Number one. Of the four R's. Here we go. Recognizing malicious profiles. Realizing the prudential threat. Reporting suspicious profiles to a security manager. That one's a long one. And four, removing the profiles. I mean, (laughs) if you remember the four R's, you're not actually going to remember the bit that you actually need to, which is, you know, the malicious profiles, the potential threat, and then removing said profiles. (laughs) <laughs> You're just going to realise, report and remove. Yeah, and recognise. Mm. <laughs> the the US and the other countries have, have launched similar campaigns. Former CIA officer Kevin Mallory was sentenced to 20 years in prison after being convicted of giving secrets to China following an approach on LinkedIn. So there we go. I assume that one was a bit more malice-driven than accidental. I mean, they must be targeting people that work for you know, civil service or or people that are worth targeting, not just everyday pedestrians like you and me. 
surely. I mean, you know, we're everyday pedestrians that work for a company that provides encrypted storage. So, uh, you know, maybe. (laughs) Uh, A few episodes back, I chatted with John Verdi, vice president of policy at the Future of Privacy Forum. We touched on encryption, manipulative user interfaces and dark patterns. But John had so much great stuff to say that didn't make the episode. So today... We wanted to share the second half of that interview. We're releasing it just after World Press Freedom Day and the launch of our new partnership with the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Yesterday, we announced that we'll be supporting the nonprofit by matching donations made during their latest fundraiser. It builds on our One Password for Journalism initiative, which allows any reporter to use our password manager for free. In my chat with John, we discuss everything from biometrics to virtual and augmented reality. And if you want to learn more about World Press Freedom Day, be sure to check out our links in the show notes. Enjoy. I want to switch over to biometric technologies. So face scanning, fingerprint scanning, other other sort of biometric tech. It's obviously becoming increasingly advanced and more and more people are relying on it every single day. There's also benefits to these technologies. You know, I can unlock my phone a lot faster. I can unlock my computer a lot faster without typing in a password. But there's also risks to privacy. What have you been doing in this space to sort of promote those benefits versus risks? So this is another big topic for for lawmakers right now. And one of the things that we learned a couple years ago was that if you went in and talked to a staffer or a member of a legislature, either federal or state or or global, they wouldn't necessarily understand the difference between, just to take an example, facial recognition technology and facial characterization technology. They wouldn't understand the difference between facial detection and facial characterization. And it would be really, really rare if they understood the difference between the facial recognition technology that allows us to unlock our phones with our faces And that same sort of facial recognition technology put to a totally different use, which would be, you know, to recognize us in a crowd at a sporting event. Yeah. Right. And all of those use cases have totally different risks. So, you know, one of the things that we did was we started to do briefings with policymakers to say, this is what facial detection is. If you have a camera and it basically scans, you know, cell phone camera or SLR or anything else. And it basically scans what's in front of the lens and asks the question, is this a face or is this not a face? And it merely uses that algorithm to focus the lens on faces because most people, when they're taking snapshots, want, if there's a face in the frame, they want to focus on the face. They don't want to focus on the drapes in the background or the pumpkin in the foreground or whatever it is. And that's facial detection. It doesn't create a biometric identifier. It's not the sort of thing that raises a plethora of privacy concerns. It's just a useful technology that helps people take better pictures. And if you're going to craft a law that talks about, you know, mitigating the risks of facial recognition technology, that's great. But you don't want to loop facial detection into that bucket. You don't want to regulate it heavily because there just aren't a ton of privacy concerns around facial detection. And then you've got this middle ground, which is facial characterization, right? Is this a old face or a young face? Is this a male face or a female face? Is this a face that is attached to long hair or short hair? Right. I might want to, you know, target ads for hair products or something like right. that. These sorts of facial characterization technologies are primarily used to do things like, you know, program digital signs at bus stops and things like that. So if I walk up to the bus stop and, you know, it serves an ad for men's clothing. This sort of thing raises more privacy questions than the facial detection, but not quite as many as full-blown facial recognition, right? Because it's not seeking to identify me, John Verdi. It's just trying to put me in a bucket 
of well, well this is a middle-aged guy's face or this is you know something else right you know i might want to you know sell this individual beard grooming products or something because this face has a beard okay that's interesting it's a data point about me but it doesn't create a unique facial biometric that it attaches to a name john verdi but look there are real risks here how does this software focus on, on a different spectrum of gender identity? That's a hard question. How does this software deal, you know, well, poorly, et cetera, across different skin colors? Is it more effective for some folks or others? Does this software put people into buckets that are societally objectionable? There was research in which some researchers tried to determine sexual orientation based on a facial characterization scan, mm. right? I mean, one doesn't seem terribly effective and I kind of you know don't buy it, but two, that sensitive personal information that is not immediately obvious to somebody else who, who's walking down the street in the way that, you know, if somebody looks at me walking down the street, they say, oh, that's a middle-aged guy, yeah. right? Yeah. Whether they know me or not, they can kind of perceive that. So the idea that that sort of technology would be used for those sorts of purposes, I think struck some as deeply problematic. And, you know, lawmakers were interested in saying, well, hey, wait a second, you, you ought not be inferring sensitive categories from a facial characterization scan. That's an interesting approach, and, and it may be a fruitful one. And then you get to facial recognition technology, right? And frankly, most of the concerns and most of the big risks here are in a bucket that we think of at FPF as facial recognition um, being used for identification purposes. And that's distinct from FAR being used for verification purposes. So, if you or I want to unlock our phone with our face, that's verification, right? There's an existing hashed um, face print on the phone that you have opted in and already enrolled, or I opt in and I already enroll. And then the phone tries to match the face that's in front of it to that authenticated print. If it's anybody else, it doesn't like go out to the internet and try to pull other photos from a database and identify who the person is. It just says, not a match, you can't unlock the phone. And that sort of facial verification tends not to raise a lot of objections. Yeah, you've got to secure the data. Yes, you should take reasonable steps to ensure that it's protected from breach, that it's hashed, that it's equally effective across various populations. Yes, you ought to do all those things. But at the end of the day, it doesn't seem to really raise massive privacy and data protection risks if you're doing it on an opt-in verification basis. And then you get to the end where you get to facial recognition used to identify individuals who are unknown to you, unknown to the business, unknown to the organization, unknown to the university, unknown to you and me, and compares against a giant database from somewhere and tries to identify the individual and says, that's John Verde. Yeah. That's the one where lawmakers have major concerns. And that's the one where you see city councils, state legislatures, national legislatures in the US and around the world considering this issue, and in some cases, banning the technology outright, in other cases, pressing pause on the technology and saying, we don't know enough about the benefits and the risks to be able to adequately assess it right now, and we need to do more study. But we know that the risks are high. And if the benefits are also high, we really need to look into this more, right? So we're going to press pause. And I think this issue is one that has struck a chord. It's really resonated with folks. And it's been the subject of more legislative action at the local level than, than any privacy issue that I've seen in a long time. So in a similar space, you've got things like augmented reality and virtual reality. Yep. Virtual reality 
strikes me as a deeply personal technology that doesn't have a lot of privacy implications. And I'm interested to hear how I'm wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So, so, so I'll, I'll, I won't do the thing where I stand up and, and yell, you're wrong and point a finger <laughs> because we're, we're doing this remote, right? Um, we're socially distanced. But let me say, you know, one of the fundamental things that my VR headset needs to do in order to function effectively is make a detailed map of the inside of my house. And that's why I don't trip over stuff. Right. Yep. Yeah. When I'm wearing it. And the question is, does that detailed map of the inside of my house stay on the device? Is it shared with the headset manufacturer? Is it shared with the software makers? Um, how is it used? Is it used to improve the product? I mean, I would imagine that these headset makers want to make the anti-tripping and anti-collision detection on their headsets better. So they would have real incentives and, and really legitimate reasons to try to analyze how effectively that technology is working. At the same time, what's your level of comfort with a detailed 3D representation of the interior of your house being shared with a, a, a giant organization? Yeah. That's a real question. It, it, yeah, it absolutely is. And it's one that, that I think each individual needs to be able to answer on their own. Right. And that isn't to say, I mean, there's clear benefits, yeah, yeah. right? H how well does the anti-collision detection handle pets <laughs> who, you know, you, uh, your dog is not your couch, right? Your couch tends to be pretty stable. I imagine your dog doesn't. Right. How about your spouse? How about your kids? How about your grandma? You know, grandma's still spry. She's getting around a lot too. She moves almost as much as the dog, right? The kids move as much as the dog. And the headset is trying to ensure that you don't trip over or bump into any of these people or animals or furniture. What happens when you use your VR headset in your bedroom instead of your gaming room or your living room? Do you want a detailed map of the inside of your bedroom being shared with a headset maker, with a software maker? Again, that's not to suggest that sharing those maps to improve the product and help people not trip over grandma is a significant problem, but it's not something that people immediately think of when they buy a VR headset and they start engaging in either games or, you know, viewing athletic events or, or anything else in, in terms of the entertainment value that's provided by that platform. I'll give you one example. You know, in some ways, these VR headsets are the next iteration of gaming platforms. And I want to say one gaming platform generation ago with, with the Xbox and PlayStation consoles, those consoles integrated facial recognition technology. And companies made a conscious decision to do all that processing on device and not share it back to the company because they thought there was a trust gap there. Right. They thought there was a genuine trust gap. And I think that VR is going to encounter some of those same trust issues. So, so that would be my case for both the benefits and the risks on VR. Yeah. It's interesting because I... Well, I'm, I'm an optimist at heart, so I just assume that best decisions have been made in many cases. And it's funny, I, you know, I started saying that I don't think that VR has real privacy issues, but then of course, like, sure, you're right, it does. Yeah. And let me give you another one, right? So I talked a little bit about sort of, you know, map of the inside of your house. And maybe some folks just sort of, some listeners are shrugging and they're saying, eh, it's not, not that personal. My couch is over here, grandma's over there, the dog's out on the porch. Okay, fine. No yep. worries. Let's talk about VR headsets and the sensors that are pointed at the user. So some VR experiences are much improved if they track a user's eyes, right? As you look around the space, that's super duper useful. It's also a potentially identifying biometric because the patterns of that vision movement can be what's called a behavioral biometric. And there's a fair amount of research going on right now 
to try to determine whether or not someone's activities, um, those sorts of behavioral biometrics, whether it's their eye movements, their hand movements, et cetera, can be analyzed to determine whether or not the individual has either early stages or a propensity for certain medical conditions. Yeah. So if you think about holding regular video game controls on an Xbox or a PlayStation or holding VR controls, what should a company do if they discover that some percentage of their customers have micro tremors that are an indication of future Parkinson's disease? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Should, should they? I mean, this is an ethical question. Right. Okay. If they decide to not do that analysis at all, then they know there's opportunity cost. They could have warned people to get early treatment, but they've elected not to because it's too invasive. It's too creepy, right? Maybe we're willing to live with that opportunity cost. Should they provide consumers with an opt-in for that? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe just mentioning it is too creepy. Yeah. Same goes for mobile phones with the accelerometers in there. You know, Right now, you look at something like the Apple Watch, and it seems like folks are pretty comfortable on an opt-in basis with that device monitoring for cardiac events. Folks look at the company, they look at the service, they look at the possible benefits, they look at the risks, and they say, you know what, as long as most of this data stays on device, as long as I'm in charge of it, I am actually interested in my watch alerting me early to a possible cardi cardiac event. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that's one where it seems like the balance is about right. But I heard your reaction when I mentioned the tremor thing, or I mentioned the Parkinson's thing. That's not immediately something that you're ready to embrace. Yeah, it's fast. Well, it, <laughs> you know, it comes down to, for, for me, so I, I have an Apple Watch, and I've, yes, I've opted into all of these things. And I want to know sure. as soon as my heart is broken. Like, it's, uh, <laughs> Apple has built the device as that thing, right? Like, I understand this is effectively a, a wearable health device. And Apple has also talked enough about their stance on privacy and made it part of their company DNA that I, I sort of have an implicit trust about how they're going to handle my data. I'm not putting on a PlayStation VR headset in order to see if I have Parkinson's. Like, I'm there to go play video games, right? So it'd be, right. if I got a, uh, like, a, when I was setting it up, it's like, hey, by the way, we can monitor to see if, like, you've got Parkinson's. I'd be like, it's off-brand. I think I'd, I'd be taken a little bit aback by it. Right. So that's the context collapse. Yeah, yeah. Where, where you look at it and you say, and I agree with you, I, I think that would be a lot of folks instincts on this. Let me give you an alternative, right? VR holds huge promise for occupational and behavioral therapy, especially amongst older adults. You can put folks in a VR experience that is therapeutic in many ways. And maybe the context, that kind of medical context, that kind of therapeutic context makes the calculus different. Yeah. If it's not a PSVR that you've signed up with to play video games, and you go to your occupational therapy appointment and they say, okay, well, here's the deal. We can do OT with you using VR. And we think we can give you a heads up about some warning signs of other conditions. Here's the HIPAA form in or out. Yeah. Right. What do you think? And maybe you trust your therapist. Maybe you trust your doctor in a way that you don't trust, as you say, whatever video game developer happens to have the flavor of the week on PSVR. Yeah, exactly. You put it in the uh, the kind of education and tutoring context, and it brings up a whole other set of issues around young people, kids and teens, who may not be in a position to consent to anything at all. Right, yeah. So endlessly fascinating stuff, I think, you know, guarantee of full employment for both uh, regulators and the folks who are, who are trying to engage on these issues. <laughs> for sure, for sure. All right, let's bring it home. I and mean, we'll end it off on a big question. Do you think it's possible to build a world 
where technological innovation and privacy coexist peacefully? Or do you think that they're always going to be at odds and we're always going to be trying to find the boundary? Oh, um, really good question. So I thought you were going to ask an unsophisticated question, which I hear a lot, which is, can technological advancement and privacy coexist? And the answer to that is obviously yes. But you asked the sophisticated question, which is, can these things exist peacefully or is there going to be constant tension? And I think the answer is, hey, like many things in life, I don't know that this stuff can exist without tension. And I would suggest to you that one of the main reasons for that is that individuals tend to have heterogeneous privacy preferences. What do you mean by that? So let me, let me give you the opposite example first. Let me give you the contrast first, which is that most people, in my view, have homogenous preferences about food safety. Yeah, okay. Yep. Okay. So I don't want to eat spoiled food. Do you want to eat spoiled food? Not typically, no. Sweet. Okay. But now there are edge cases. You can go to unpasteurized cheese. You can go to certain food traditions that carry a level of risk that some individuals are comfortable with and others are not. But those are edge cases. Yeah. By and large, if you go to the bakery, butcher, grocery store, whatever, you and I would prefer unspoiled food. And I think that that's broad. That's a homogenous preference. Yeah. Yeah. Heterogeneous privacy preferences, I think, are the norm. So if you take a look at people across countries, across socioeconomic groups, across genders and races and ages and all the things that make us a diverse world and a diverse globe, and you ask them a basic set of privacy questions about how they want their devices and services to operate, I think you would get lots and lots of diverse answers. Yeah. Something as simple as, hey, do you want your online music service to analyze everything you listen to and create custom playlists for you? A lot of folks are going to say yes. Some folks are going to say yeah. no. Right? Oh, that's interesting. So should that recommendation engine be on or off by default, right? When you have a world of heterogeneous views about its utility. That's a, that's a good question. Some folks opt into routine, persistent location sharing on their mobile devices. So if they have an Android device, if they have an iOS device, they can enable a feature that tracks their location all the time. And they find it useful for a variety of reasons. So let me ask you this. Do you have that feature enabled? Can you go to you're on whatever it's iOS or Android. Can you go to that portal and see everywhere you've been for the last year? I can. You and can. I do okay. have it enabled. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you find that super useful. Yeah. Okay. I literally toggle the location on and off based on whether or not I'm using a location-based app. <laughs> and that's not because I don't like my mobile phone. It's not because I don't trust Google, who happens to make both my phone and the operating system. It's because I look at it and say, there are a variety of apps out there in the world who are calling location permissions. And when I'm using Google Maps and Navigator and Pokemon Go, I completely understand why those apps need that location permission. And when I'm using other apps that might be calling that permission for reasons that I don't understand and don't know about, I'm just going to cut off the, I'm going to turn off the spigot at its source. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're not wrong and I'm not right. But I think if you went out into the world and said, like, what is your level of comfort with location tracking? You'd have some folks who have it wide open, totally enabled. 
you'd have other folks who have a bunch of apps that say, you can only use this permission when the app is operating, right? You can't track me pervasively, but when the app is operating, I totally understand the need for it. And you'd have other folks who never enable that permission at all, who say, I don't want a company or the government or anybody else to know where I am and when I'm there. Right. Yeah. That's what I mean by heterogeneous privacy preferences. So there's always the tension. When you say, can technological advancement and privacy coexist, quote unquote, peacefully, right? I don't think we get to a point where everybody agrees in the same way that we agree we don't want to eat spoiled food. Yeah, I'm on board with that assessment. I think that that tension is necessary on both sides, right? I think that as a technologist, I want that freedom to find those boundaries or to push those boundaries. And I also want a strong eye towards privacy on the other side of things to keep that in check. It's a checks and balances system that I think is is necessary to, to take us to the best the best places that we can be. John, I think that you and I could probably host a three-hour podcast with just the two of us. This was an absolute pleasure, and I hope that we can have you back again someday for a follow-up, because this was, this was lots of fun, and I think that we've got a lot of ground that we can still cover. Thanks for having me. All right. I think it's time that we dive into some three-word password. Kat, this is your first time playing. How's your general knowledge? Oh my God. Anna actually gave me a tip off. She was like, there's a new game, so you might want to listen to the last episode just so that you, um, you're you clued up. I did that. I did take her advice. And I don't think it's helped me because if anything, it's just made me more nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good at the cryptic crossword clues. And I feel that this, this falls directly within that category. And I'm going to give it a go. All right. That's good. Okay. This is the single worst way to share a password. It's where I give a cryptic clue to guess the three mystery words created by our memorable password generator. And I'm going to be honest this week, I did press it twice, right? So so there's a, it's a bit easier because I've, I've cherry-picked out of two attempts here. All right. Very good. So the first one, actually, I'm, I'm going to run through all three and then you can, and then you can chat about it, all right? I think Anna and, asked and me not do to do that. Are we playing? Are we playing against each other or together? Uh, I think you're collaboratively on this one. Okay. Okay. That's so, good. a color that's orange or yellowish, yellowish brown, often used to describe a port that's aged in a wooden barrel with gradual oxidization. Also describes a British owl species about the size of a wood pigeon. All right. So that's your first one. Any ideas? Any like? Oh, okay. Oh yeah, I've got it. I know oh, what it is. What is it? Tawny. Well, Ooh, we okay. independently came up with that. So uh, <laughs> I feels... used to be I used to be a port buyer. I know all about port. <sighs> so I was like just going through all my port knowledge. Amazing. All right, good. I think we got the first one then. Okay, right, okay. the second well one. Well done. Right, a mountain range in South and East Asia separating the plains of the Indian subcontinent from t- the Tibetan plateau uh, includes many of ha- Earth's highest peaks and lends its name to a Palin documentary series and a newfound glory song from the album Forever Plus Ever Times Infinity. If you don't know the uh, mountain range, you might know the newfound glory song. <laughs> so I'm going to jump to the third one, then we can, then we can talk. Wait, so, wait, 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 wait. I want to oh. talk this one out with Kat. What is this okay. mountain range? I, I don't know it. Southeast Asia. Oh my God, what is it? Oh, I'm, I'm, it's, it's right on the tip of my tongue too. There's We're going to be real the, mad when we hear it, when we hear yeah, it. Yeah. One of the like seven peaks 
is is in this range, isn't it? One of the one of the highest ones that you have to do if you yep. want, want to tick all those off. And I just read a book about someone that was doing that, so I'm just really annoyed because I can't think of it. Oh no! All right, keep going, Matt. We'll come back to it. Okay, the third one is a weight suspended from a pivot so that it swings freely. Often used in scientific instru- instruments such as accelerometers and seismometers, and historically was an accurate way of timekeeping. Also, the name of a particularly banging Australian drum and bass band uh, with albums Hold Your Colour and Formation. Oh, yes. Did you please tell me you got it from the Australian drum and bass band? <laughs> Wait, I, I hope I've got it right. I mean, Rue, do you, do you have an idea of what this one is? Well, so it's okay. I have two. It's, I was thinking it's either going to be Plum Bob or Pendulum. I was going with the latter, Pendulum. All right, then. What's a Plum Bob? What's a Plum Bob? It, it's a way of um, it's a way of getting <laughs> it's a perfectly string, right? No, it is. It's okay. uh, it's a it's a construction tool that allows you to find the spot directly below something else. So, like if you you suspend the, the top of the plumb bob from something and then let it fall, and and the, the tip of the the end of the the weighted plumb bob touches the ground, you know that that's directly below where you where you're at. Huh. Never heard of that. All right, no. great. So we have tawny something. <sighs> Pendulum, what the hell is this mountain range? This is re- It's really hard to not just look it up online. <laughs> I, I have an American mountain range in my head that I can't get out. I'm like, I'm blocked on it. Well, say the wrong one and then and then it might help. It's the Appalachians. And I, and it's, I know 100% it's wrong. I can't get past it. Well, I have the Himalayas oh, in yes. my head. It's but Himalayas. It's them. I don't think it is. Well, it is the Himalayas, I, yes. Is it? It oh. is. Yeah. Thank you. God, Kat, you're fantastic. I couldn't I couldn't get it out. <laughs> there we go. I Tawny mean, Himalaya mean. Pendulum. That took that that was that was twice on the old uh, password generator. Yes, we got it. Yes. Yes. We got it. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love this game so much. This is fantastic. Yeah, it's good. It's refreshing. It's a good change. Good yep. to shake things up a bit. <sighs> all right. I think that's all we've got time for. Well, this was fun. With that, I'm going to say love you both. Love you both. Thank you. Love you both. <laughs>